0: Oh, welcome to when good things no, that's not
1: what <laughs> good things happen to bad people. <laughs> we today we're Oh god, that's good.
0: Hey listeners, uh, this is when bad things happen to good people—a podcast that was uh, plagued by some issues this week. Uh, before you get listening, I wanted to warn you that the audio quality is not super good. Um, we encountered some uh, some problems. I was speaking into the wrong side of my microphone, and I think Oren uh, his his system was set up to use the wrong microphone. Um, So neither of us sound particularly good. I am pretty sure it was the fault of um, the lack of Lucky Beer, which you will hear about once you get into um, the podcast proper. Uh, But uh, yeah, we're going to put this out as it is. Uh, Oren has, has worked... What magic you can on the audio that we have. Uh, we continue to learn lessons as we produce these things, and hopefully uh, the next issue will or the next episode will sound uh, back to normal again. Thanks for your patience. Thanks for listening, and uh, enjoy. well how are things Oren?
1: not too bad how about you uh
0: they're okay um i have i have a confession i wasn't able to i i have so far i have a lucky podcast beer i don't know if i've told you this but every time that we've recorded so far i've had a a can of uh it's a blackberry sour it's called dino sour okay yeah by uh, phillips brewing it's absolutely delicious and I have, uh, I've had that every time that we've recorded our podcast so far. And I went to pick one up today to continue the the streak of my good luck beer. And they were out. They didn't have any more. And then, so that was bad enough. But to make matters worse, uh, I intended to grab, there was a, a raspberry wheat beer, also made by Phillips. That was like right next to it. And I was going to grab that. And somehow my brain just shut off completely and i picked up some kind of fucking arizona premium vodka hard green tea thing that i had no interest in getting um which is probably full of sugar that i shouldn't be having but um that's that's what i got here so let's hope that doesn't that's not a uh, an omen of what's to come on the podcast today
1: Nah, I'm sure it'll be fine.
0: Although, um, you have a confession too, so...
1: Yeah, I do have a confession. Um, I, in classic orange style, am wildly unprepared for this evening. I did <laughs> not finish the last chapter. The, oh, what? Yeah, yeah, I know. <clears throat> I know, I thought I'd just let you talk about it and just like think. Oh yeah, I remember that part. Oh yeah, okay. <laughs> but I, I thought I'd be honest and... and with you, <laughs>
0: yeah. I, I, and I appreciate the honesty. I would, I would totally blame this on my my not having my good luck beer. Um, but since that was a problem that came after your inability to finish the chapter, I guess it's not responsible. Well, um,
1: I mean, if you if you look yeah. at time, if you look at time as linear and, and not ah oh, shit, I can't remember the name. Have you seen the the Good Place? Have you seen that show?
0: Yeah, have. Jeremy Berry. Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, looking at the news, we had some fun um, semi-censorship news last week that I wanted to bring up ever so briefly. Um, a relation of President Donald Trump, I believe it's his niece named Mary Trump, uh, published a book last week called Too Much and Never Enough about um, Trump's early life and family life and uh, there were some people that were for some reason trying to prevent the book from being published and uh, some people that were trying to I guess she had signed a non-disclosure agreement about certain things Uh, and then just on the day of release of the book she was a judge released her from the obligations of the um, non-disclosure agreement so she's able to talk about the stuff that she wasn't supposed to talk about So that that was interesting. Um, I haven't read it, obviously. Um, I shouldn't say obviously. I could have read it, but I didn't. Um, But what I've heard so far is that, you know, it's got some interesting revelations about Trump's youth, uh, including the fact that he apparently paid someone to take the SATs for him, which... I mean, I don't know. That's That's not surprising. Yeah, Yeah, no, it seems like... that seems entirely uh, within his... Character, as far as I know, as far as I know can see, but I guess you might say that the most shocking thing is that he actually paid someone.
1: <laughs> didn't just promise payment and then
0: didn't. Promise exactly, payment.
1: yeah. If you take my SATs, I'll give you some money. Okay, okay, yeah, you know, I'll get you next week. <laughs>
0: What's that saying? If you never want to see somebody uh, again,
1: just lend the money.
0: Any any newsworthy info that you want to talk about? Anything vaguely associated with uh, censorship?
1: Um, I don't know if it's newsworthy, but I did have a conversation with somebody today who... No, not today. Sorry. When was that? Yesterday. I had a conversation with somebody yesterday who believed that... All of this conspiracy theory stuff about how COVID was a government thing, how it was placed here to control the masses. I was actually there for for work uh, doing a quote, um, and it was really difficult to listen to. Uh, But she believed that the government was uh, censoring honest, good, honest people trying to get information to the people when she was talking about these videos that she had mm. seen that had been removed from Facebook. Um, so I guess, yeah, in a way that censorship, they're censoring uh, false information, but the people who believe that information are thinking that it's uh, kind of a government censorship of the truth.
0: Yeah. They, they see it as like a suppression of valuable information. Um, yeah. That's, that's a bit of a rabbit hole we could go down in maybe worth a a future episode on you know um how do you draw that line between um what is what is censorship and what is whether it's whether it should be considered censorship i mean i guess it is in a sense yeah
1: well what censorship um, is good and what censorship is is maybe bad right like i think that uh, protecting people from from false dangerous information is a good thing i think that People mm-hmm. presenting themselves as experts in a field that they know nothing about, or presenting um, "quote unquote" evidence that is untrue, and you know, trying to rally people to a certain belief or to a certain action, is dangerous and should be uh, reined in. You know, um,
0: mm-hmm.
1: I, I do believe in freedom of speech, but I also believe that you know, blatant lying like that. Shouldn't be allowed. It's it's a, that's a tough one. You know? Yeah, I mean, for me personally, um, th- that is a dichotomy. I mean, you can't agree with freedom of speech and also say that something shouldn't be said.
0: Yeah, but I yeah, do that.
1: A dichotomy exists within me, and I am really, in this moment, in this time, with what's going on right now, I'm not ashamed of that.
0: I think you know, given just regarding the you know COVID nineteen situation, we should all just remember: please wear your masks, wash your hands. And as the uh, BC CDC recommended today, consider using um, a glory <laughs> hole if you're gonna have sex. Wait, well, I mean,
1: if you're gonna have sex with somebody that you haven't been in contact with every day, like not like not a you know not your significant yeah, no, other, exactly. you know, if you're gonna have a, a risque encounter, you know, just cut a hole in a piece of plywood and go to town.
0: Exactly, yeah. <laughs> let's uh, let's move on before okay. we have an entirely different kind of podcast. <laughs> um, I did want to cover a couple of uh, what I'm calling housekeeping bits before we get into the, the meat of the episode. Um, and there, it's mostly sort of correcting or making notes about last week's episode. Mm-hmm. Uh, first, I wanted to sort of point out that it was kind of... And, and the thing to remember here is that we're both uh, kind of new to the process of podcasting and we're very much learning as we go along and sort of episode by episode, particularly um, I know for myself, when I sit down to edit the, the episode and as I'm listening back to it, I kind of realize things that we could have done differently or should have done differently. And in the case of last week's episode, I realized that it was kind of all over the place, that we kind of didn't have any actual structure to it. Uh, and also at no point did we ever kind of explain this is the overall story of what occurred over these chapters. And I think that was a mistake. I think, you know, that's something we need to do in the future. So we're going to start doing that with this episode. Um, another thing that we didn't cover that I think we definitely should have uh, at the very beginning of last week's podcast was talking about why uh, this book was has been banned or challenged. Because that's the whole subject that we're talking about. That's what we're supposed to be doing here. So we didn't spend any time at all talking about why the autobiography of Malcolm X has been uh, banned or challenged in the past. So
1: we'll do that really quickly right now. Please do, because honestly, I haven't read on the subject yet. So you are teaching me at the same time.
0: And it's, it's tricky because so far, I don't think we've hit anything in the book that is you know that would be considered you know dangerous or uh, information worth suppressing
1: are you saying so far as in what we've talked about on the episodes or so far what we're going to discuss today because i would say there was a Both. couple of okay i would say there's a couple of things in the last um chapters that we're covering today that were a little on the worrisome side
0: okay that's fair um so what I found, I found an article, or I found a, a, a link on a website called the thecensorshipfiles.wordpress.com, and they had a whole page explaining or talking about, you know, why the, the autobiography of Malcolm X had been banned. But I zeroed in on sort of like one paragraph where they were talking about uh, an author um, or an, an article called Why the Autobiography of Malcolm X was Banned. And they explained that uh, many people labeled it as a guide to crime and chaos. Mm-hmm. And it included many instances of anti white statements in its depiction of the intense racial divides at the time. These representations drew criticism and backlash. And actually, I'd say even at the tail end of uh, chapter 10, we might be getting to some of the firsts of those anti white statements. Uh, I guess you wouldn't know that word because you didn't <laughs> reading. But. Um, did, you yeah, me, basically, did you call me a putz? No. Oh! I said, <laughs> Uh, anyway um, I mean the, uh, if
1: the shoe people, fits right but <laughs> uh,
0: people describe it as uh, kind of a, a you know proposing black um, and white violence and that sort of thing and I imagine we'll see more of that as the book continues and I imagine too that given the era especially in the middle of uh, the civil rights movement that any kind of messaging that maybe black people should be rising up and, and taking some power could be received as a little bit threatening.
1: Right. But also that brings me back to the foreword written by his son, um, Mm -hmm. where he discusses that later on, like near the, near the end of his father's life, how he was expressing um, more reconciliation based approaches Mm -hmm. rather than than radical approaches and and how Mm -hmm. maybe the book doesn't exactly reflect the man that he was at his death and more maybe the man he was at the time of the writing of the autograph.
0: Mm -hmm. Well, I think it was his relationship (laughs) with the nation of Islam religion that resulted in a lot of that sort of pro-violence messaging, um, And maybe not pro violence. As I understand it, it's less pro violence and more pro defense. That you know, rising up in defense of yourself is is okay. Like pro action. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, But certainly, he was. He had left the Nation of Islam before he died, uh, and was changing his viewpoints. And I I believe I said to somebody on um, on my Facebook page when talking about this that it's kind of a a tragedy. I mean, obviously Malcolm X's death is a tragedy. In and of itself, but that we never got a chance to see him and his his way of thinking uh, evolve to its its full extent over the course of a natural lifespan. Uh, given mm-hmm. he was killed at thirty nine, um, but yeah, that's essentially why it's been been banned and challenged uh, more so in the past than than recently. Um, so let's get into talking about this week's chapters which were six through ten um you or i think had a really interesting way of describing them when you uh sent me a, a message about it earlier today what was the word you choose to use
1: oh i can't
0: remember oh a <laughs> <The whole laughs> spiral
1: oh yes it was very much a listening to this man speak about a sp- like a dangerous spiral um, into very immoral, very dangerous, questionable actions. Um, yeah. Spiral. That's the word I use. <laughs> That's
0: a good word. I think uh, because yeah, it, it's very much, you know um, you know, the first section that we read was all about sort of his, his childhood, his growing up uh, and his sort of first experiences out in the world, getting into the big city, and that sort of thing. This is sort of uh, him taking a turn, um, I don't want to necessarily say for the worst, but certainly into um, crime and criminality. Some dark Um, places, for sure. He went to some dark dark places. places.
1: Um, And I think he kind of touched on it, on the the chapters before, um, in his fascination with the people who had lived that life, or were currently living that life. Um, Mm -hmm. And it was, you know, I think the chapters that we... Went through this time, with exception to the last one,
0: <laughs> which you can't speak to.
1: Which uh, I, I feel was his um, journey into that lifestyle. Mm-hmm. So, chapter six, Detroit Red, what was the first one I went through.
0: Yeah, and that um, that was sort of. I think at that point, and I don't know, I don't recall how old he was in these chapters, but still, obviously, very young. Um, And it's sort of like, at that point, he's just kind of discovering um, sort of the seedier side of of Harlem, uh, gambling, prostitution. uh, And he starts to sell marijuana, or as it's called in the book, reefer. Reefer's absolutely loved. Every time I see the word reefer, I think it's <laughs> He talks a lot about the numbers, too,
1: in this episode or this uh, chapter.
0: Yeah. Um, and at one point, and I, I can't remember the details, but I remember him explaining how the numbers game worked. And I found that was interesting because he did talk about the numbers game earlier in the book without mm-hmm. giving that kind of explanation. Um, and now sort of understanding how it worked. Uh, I, I enjoyed having that, um, being able to understand it. And I guess he started working um, in the numbers too. he was taking bets and then um, bringing the money back to like the people that made the bets and sort of he was sort of running um, the bets and the money back and forth for a while right. right
1: and it's and it's I think it's of note to point to point out that uh, these gambling rings are run by white gangsters, so I'm just reading a page here that the the white gangsters would describe. The, the game like the the money's or uh, numbers game in Harlem as uh, N word pennies, and the numbers game was referred to by the white racketeers as N word or N word pool. I'm getting tongue tied because I'm reading the word. It's actually written in the book, and
0: mm-hmm. I'm trying to trying madly not trying
1: madly not to say it because I do not want to say it. Um, and I, I feel like it's it's interesting to know that. You know, the, the numbers game was such a big part of these people's lives because it was a chance to get out of poverty, to, to have something. Right? If you wanted Man. numbers, you could you could buy a nice car, you could have nice women, you could you could be someone. Something that you weren't able to do being strict, you know, just working any job you could get, um, you wouldn't you wouldn't be able to achieve that kind of status, that kind of money. And it's, it's interesting to know that even the people that were making the most money off of that were white gangsters.
0: Yes, exactly. Yeah, so um, there was a lot of talk, too, I found in that chapter about um, male-female relations, and particularly um, interracial male-female relations. Black women wanting to have, sleep with white women. Uh, black women wanting to sleep with white men. Mm-hmm. Um, there was a, a story he shared about a, a prostitute named Alabama Peach who desperately wanted to try having sex with a black man. And so she basically blackmailed this this dude that worked for her dad into having sex with her just so she could try it out, see what right. you know, having sex with a black man was like. And it was like kind of horrifying that you know, someone's life was put on the line just so you could get your thrills. But then I I made a note too of of some of Malcolm's general comments about women. I guess this is something that he had picked up from um, The Prostitutes. But uh, he said, this is from the book, a woman should occasionally be babied enough to show her the man had affection, but beyond that, she should be treated firmly. These tough women said that it worked with them. All women, by their nature, are fragile and weak. They are attracted to the male in whom they see strength. Right. Which is, you know, obviously that's... Well, some would argue that that's accurate. Um, but it's also, I think, a remnant of the ideas of that era. Oh,
1: Absolutely um
0: whether black or white right
1: yeah and and i I gotta say that the one thing that really um struck a dissonant chord with me through these chapters was his relationship with women and um striking of women uh, which maybe Mm -hmm. wasn't as big a deal back then but uh to to me now it was uh quite shocking uh to hear it spoken so plainly um and i I gotta give him you know props for being very honest, forthright, and, you know, he just laid it all out, you know. None of this stuff makes him seem like a good person. None of mm-hmm. this stuff makes him seem, you know, holier than thou. He's laying out, he's just describing himself as he was at the time. He's, you know, and at the end of uh, chapter 9, you know, he, he does he does bring it up and he's, he says, um, maybe I should actually go to that when we get to chapter nine, but he does allude to, he does
0: admit that this is, you know, it's not, um, it's not a glamorous picture of his life, but he wants sort of everyone to see where he came from to understand sort of where he went. Uh, So I'm interested to know if
1: his approach to women changes later on in the book. Um, It could be that he's just describing the way that he felt at the time and maybe his, his, Feelings towards women evolved as his feelings towards a lot of other things. um, I'm sure Mm he evolved throughout this book. So um, I'm interested to see where, where, where things change for him in in that aspect.
0: Yeah. And then uh, I think, I don't remember if it was this chapter, but um, in his discussion about, you know, the different hustles that he had at this time. Um, he talked about one that I thought was absolutely brilliant, which was they went to buy this kind of discounted knockoff—not knockoff, but like oh yeah, with his brother. slightly damaged jewelry and things like that. Well, with his really brother, cheap. that
1: was that was the one because his brother wanted to hustle a bit, right? And he wanted to give his brother something that if he got caught, with, he wasn't going to get in trouble, with, right? Right. Yeah, that was very very brilliant,
0: smart. Yeah, so they had all of this legit merchandise. Um, they had a legit license to sell it. But then they went into these sort of richer neighborhoods, um, acted like they had this kind of high-end stolen stuff, mm-hmm. and sold it to, like, white people who didn't know better. And then, Well, they,
1: they just like, assumed it was high quality. They just assumed it was hot. They assumed
0: it was stolen. Exactly. Because of the way they acted. Oh, it's brilliant. Yeah, that was brilliant. And then, yeah, if the cops... Pull them over to say what you're doing. You've got you've got legit merchandise, and you have a license to be selling it. As long as the the people you're selling to don't sell a license, <laughs> yeah,
1: exactly.
0: you're set. Yeah. So um, th- that's one of a couple of examples where um, they sort of used racial prejudice to outsmart people a little bit.
1: There was yeah, there was a couple instances of that um, during these chapters. Uh, do you want to go through these chapter by chapter? Is it okay if we jump around a little bit?
0: If we jump around a little bit, yeah, I kind of want to try to work our way through chapter by chapter, but let's right. jump around if we need to. I, I remember... Did you him... want to talk about the the going up and uh, directly talking to the cops while you're in the middle of a robbery?
1: Oh, yeah, that's a good one. Yeah, describe that one.
0: Yeah, so um, in a couple of cases, um, they were they were fleeing from just having robbed a place, and they, they heard the, the sirens coming, the, and instead of running, they would actually approach the cops and flag them down and, and ask for directions. Um, and the cops would kindly give them directions and be on their way, the thinking being that in the white police officers' minds, a black person wouldn't be smart enough to come up with that kind of a strategy. And so yeah, another example of like using that kind of racial prejudice to their advantage. Um, and there were two instances in the book where that happened. One, they were fleeing a robbery and one they were in a car. I think they had just had a big robbery on a place and they were driving away and Uh, They pulled over and approached the cops.
1: Yeah, that was a very smart man for sure, and it was him in both instances that that got out of the car and and, had done that. Um, But the the thing I was referring to was uh, the train hopping. So he still had his ID from when he worked Mm -hmm. as uh, what was his what was his role on the train? He he
0: would sell items on the train. He was kind of like yeah, he sold sandwiches and coffee and stuff.
1: Uh, but he still had his, his uh, railroad ID and to get free rides, he would show his ID and just say, oh, you know, I got to get, I got to get home to my family. And same thing, he would describe it as, you know, no white conductor would would think that a, a black man would be smart enough to, you know, pull the wool over his eyes and that he must mm-hmm. be being honest. And, and he's, you know, he's an employee of the, of the, the railroad, so hop on. Yeah. So. Yeah, so that was. I think those were the two instances where he, where he described it that way.
0: Yeah, I, during that time, I think he was bouncing from place to place to sort of stay away from some heat in the city that was closing in on him. And he was
1: right, right. Selling
0: reefer in in different places, and I think he even talked about selling reefer right on the train. Which, which, uh,
1: well, he was talking about following his musician friends around because they were really, mm, yeah, right. really good, uh, really good clientele, and when the heat was hitting him in Harlem. Uh, he would just find out where they were playing, head there, you know, smoke with them, sell them, sell so reefers. I love... Yeah, you know what? I love that word. Reefer. Yeah. Um...
0: Another, speaking of drugs, another um, phrase that came up uh, quite a lot that I enjoyed was, um, sniffing of cocaine. Right. Um, in modern parlance, is like you would snort cocaine, which sounds much more violent. Right. Um... But he talked about sniffing cocaine, which I thought was an interesting word choice. Maybe they maybe they did it a little more peacefully back then. <laughs> I doubt it. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, anyway, moving on to uh, Chapter 7, Hustler. Hustler, yeah. Um, which saw, obviously, more uh, hustling. That was uh, his first foray into robbery in that chapter, I believe.
1: okay. Now, which... Uh, which yeah, that's... Is this the chapter sorry? where he was... Uh, Falsely accused of robbery because he was a tall, light-skinned
0: redhead. Yeah, yeah, that's where the Italians were trying to. Uh, some Italians got involved mm. uh, and and tried to sort of take him out.
1: And he had a lot um, of close
0: calls. Yeah, uh, that was also when uh, he ended up with in kind of a, a confrontation with Sammy the Pimp's girl, which is something you would
1: right. Talk about. Yep. Yeah, that one—that one struck me hard in a lot of ways. Uh, it was—it was the striking of, of Sammy's girl, and Sammy pulling a gun on him, mm-hmm. and and you know his Sammy's girl, you know seeing that and being like you know you gotta get the fuck out of here, basically rushed him out of there, and uh, how that ruined uh, him and, and, and Sammy's friendship. Mm-hmm. Um, that was, I
0: think. A very striking moment. Yeah, and there was a, a paragraph at the end of that sequence that stood out to me um, as being kind of, it almost oversimplified the situation. But it, it reads, we soon made up on the surface, but things never are fully right again with anyone you have seen trying to kill you. <laughs> like, okay, that's fair. I could see that.
1: He's like, hey, bud, you want to go get a drink? But I'm not turning my back on you. <laughs> yeah, no,
0: maybe if I pat you down first.
1: Yeah. No, it's, it's, uh, it just kind of plays to the kind of state of mind that all of them were in, you know? And, and like you, you mentioned in the previous episode where, he, and he does discuss it again um, in, in these chapters, how he believes that he will die of a violent death. Um, so that's twice that he said that. Mm-hmm. So um, it just it just plays to the, the mindset that they were in. You know that was the life that they lived. You know there was there was guns, there was violence, there was danger around every quarter And you know during these chapters, the danger becomes more and more apparent, more and more in your face. Um, I just I just can't imagine. And he talks about you know having to do a lot of drugs to cope with that. You know the amount of stress that somebody must be in in that situation yeah that's I just kind of something imagine. you see
0: over these chapters is the the increase in his uh drug intake as well um starting with just you know just marijuana use and then uh going up into sniffing cocaine and um yeah
1: it's it seems to be to, to me it seems to be directly correlated with his spiral
0: to use my own word I yeah no <laughs> yeah, I think that spiral. Some of that was, and some of the drug use too. I think was you know because the the further into this he got, the more dangerous the entire situation became. Yeah. Um, so he was always kind of on the lookout, trying to make sure that you know he wasn't being hunted down by you know a group of Italians or right, um, you know people who thought that he was the play the guy who robbed this place because he was um a black a lighter black man with red hair and yeah um yeah just escalated and escalated and escalated
1: and uh, yeah i think i think the, the drug use just just kind of followed that escalation you know and it's interesting it's it's one of those like you know cause and effect situations which is the cause which is the effect right and i think in his situation definitely the drug use was Um, Mm -hmm. I don't think it was the cause of the danger. I think that his decisions were the cause of the danger. Um, You know, being more blatant, you know, being more, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? I I can't think of it. You know, he was just so much more involved in, in crime and in that whole, you know, kind of underworld. And Mm -hmm. the the farther he got in that the more danger he was in and the more he needed to drug himself to kind of forget you know like he spoke about you know the drugs would help him push the danger to the back of his mind so it wasn't in his face all the time
0: and so things continued to escalate through uh, chapter 7 and into chapter 8 which is called trapped and that maybe gives a sense of you know what his emotional state was at that point in time as he's you know trying to juggle his his hustles um his his other criminal activities so um with everything kind of closing in on him
1: right is trapped where he begins the robberies or was 7 where he began the robberies
0: i have um in my notes that 7 was when he began the robberies but so
1: so and that that included Rudy Sammy, or Shorty, because he had moved at this point. He had left Harlem because of the heat.
0: No, I don't think he leaves Harlem until the end of Chapter 8.
1: Okay, so these aren't the, the, the orchestrated robberies. These are the hold-ups. Like, he did a couple of mm-hmm. hold-ups, right?
0: Yeah. Oh, right. Okay, okay. But I don't, you know, I don't have a lot of notes on Chapter 8, so we can push on to Chapter 9. Um, which is when he leaves. He leaves Harlem. Uh, unless you've got stuff to say about Chapter 8.
1: Well, I think chapter eight was where the, the the drug abuse really became an issue. You know, that's mm-hmm. when he was really afraid for his life. Um, that would have been when, uh, West Indian Archie was after him because he yes. believed that he cheated on the numbers. Story. So I'll, I'll describe that situation. Um, so Malcolm had this, uh, uh, relationship with this, this man named West Indian Archie. And West Indian Archie was a numbers runner. He was a very big guy. Um very tough nobody nobody best with him um, and he was really good with numbers very smart man uh, if you gave him the numbers that you wanted to bet on he wouldn't write it down he would remember and then write them down when he got to the people that needed the numbers right so if he was mm-hmm. ever caught he wouldn't have he wouldn't have the numbers on him kind of a thing right and uh, he would also carry around a few thousand dollars of his own money and if you Um, hit big on the numbers he would pay you out of pocket and then get paid um, by the racketeers so he was you know kind of putting out his own his own money to keep things rolling keep things good he was a really good numbers guy so what ended up happening was Malcolm had hit big not super big I think it was 300 300 dollars is that right
0: I think that's what it, yeah, it, it was.
1: Like, it wasn't like one of those six to ones that he talks about where some people get like $9,000, which back then would have been absolutely insane. Yeah. Um, but yeah, he, he told Weston and Archie, he's like, hey, you know, I hit, you know, I hit at 15 or whatever to one at, at 2 bucks or I can't remember what it was. But it came up to $300. Weston and Archie pulled out his wad of money, uh, gave Malcolm uh, 300 and Malcolm... Which, again,
0: I think it's worth noting, that wasn't always the norm. Um, no. Oftentimes the runner would go back, usually the runner would go back, get the money, and then bring it back and pay you. But West Indian Archie, like, just to sort of streamline the process, um, and one of the reasons that he was such a popular runner is that he would do that. He would trust you, he'd pay you right then, and then he'd go back and get paid out himself um, yeah. by the whoever.
1: And, and I think that, that Malcolm also s- said that he he didn't do that for everybody you know, just yeah. just people that he knew. Um, so they, they they had a pretty decent relationship, I think, before this point. And uh, it, it doesn't really, and I don't think Malcolm ever really understood, like, really knew himself if if he had just mm-hmm. misinterpreted his numbers or if West Indian Archie had lied to him. But uh, West Indian Archie came after him for his life, um, threatening the people that knew Malcolm saying that malcolm cheated him uh said he hit when he didn't and that he owed him 300 dollars. and it was just interesting you know to, to to hear malcolm explain his thought process because it wasn't that he didn't have the money
0: yeah exactly he said right? like he still had like 200 of the money plus whatever was he was getting with his up. own
1: hustles right so he yeah. could he could have he could have done it
0: um, it was more about their battle of reputations right
1: right so but that's a terrifying man to be in that situation with and you know his drug in, in input increased after that and uh, yeah that that i think that was the main reason for him leaving harlem he didn't run he did stay probably longer than i think i would have you know if somebody was mm-hmm. like put a gun on me i think i'd be like yeah all right i think i think my time in this town is done <laughs> i'll see you later i'll go somewhere else um it was it was just a wild I think this was not his rock bottom but definitely his rock bottom in Harlem,
0: yeah, and then um was it shorty
1: who shows up? was it short yeah shorty's yeah, that's right, and that's when he ends up moving back to Boston
0: yeah he's like, right. hey uh let's get out of here and he does yeah and he does but uh yeah, that was a wild thing
1: um
0: anyway, that brings us to um that brings us to chapter nine. It's called caught, even though caught won't actually happen until the end of the chapter. Which I guess is a bit of a spoiler, but oh,
1: okay. So I was talking about chapter. Eight. I'm sorry. I thought I was I was giving I thought I was giving despos- that, uh, deposition on previous chapters, but uh, I was
0: wrong. Yeah, no, that was chapter eight, and the chapter nine is when he's back in Boston um, and sort of gets into criminal activity again. There, uh, getting into. Um, burglary, which I thought I thought they had a pretty good um, setup for that as well. Yeah, I agree. Where they had um, um, they basically had um, they had a group of I think five, um, and they had two women.
1: Okay, so it was a, a Ella and
0: her sister. Yeah, Ella being the the white woman that Malcolm X had, had an ongoing sort of affair with.
1: Oh no, that's Sophia. Ella, sorry, Ella, Sophia. Yeah, Sophia. So Ella is his half
0: sister. Oh, no, 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 then it's Sophia that's in the robbery with them, isn't it?
1: Yeah, Sophia's in the robbery with them, yeah. Right, yeah.
0: Um, Sophia and Sophia's friend... No, Sophia's
1: um, 17-year-old sister.
0: Yes, I'm sorry.
1: That's
0: good. Okay. Sophia and Sophia's 17-year-old sister um, would kind of go out door-to-door, um, ask to come in the house. I can't remember what they were asking to come in for. But they would come in and uh, while they were there, they would sort of stake out these houses and and get a look at what kind of um, expensive stuff was in there, what kind of valuables, where the valuables were located. And then they would decide which houses were worth going back to and burgling under cover of darkness. (laughs) Two of them would go in to burgle, Uh, Malcolm X and another uh, fellow, while one remained in the car, with the motor running for a uh, speedy getaway
1: right so so it was sophia sophia's sister malcolm shorty and rudy and and i think it was rudy that had, had scoped the first place that they burgled because he yeah. and the, do you remember this story with the old man who wanted to be treated like a baby
0: yes the old white man.
1: Man. oh man that was weird
0: do you want do you want to describe what it speaking of that about- yeah, go ahead. Well, it was just that, like, this old man wanted to, he hired, um, who did he hire again? Rudy. Rudy. Yeah. Uh, to come in, and he would, the, the old man would sort of lie on this table, all curled up at, like a baby, and he would want to be uh, a baby powder applied to him. <laughs> yeah, well, I guess Rudy, Rudy would, like, pick him up and place him on the bed and then spray
1: talcum powder on him, and that would be enough for the old man to climax. Yeah, and like, Which, I mean, oh we my don't God!
0: Like that. Kink shame here.
1: Well, I mean, we don't kink shame, but oh man, I don't know.
0: Do we kink shame? We don't. No, I, I don't kink shame. All right, if you do that, this you're a fine. Friendly podcast. You're cool. I don't want to do that. But you're cool, you but but don't but
1: don't you know just attack a visible minority to get your kicks off. You no. Know? <laughs> and I, I think that was one thing that Malcolm was getting to was that a lot of these people who have these really extreme kinks and they wanted to exercise them, they wanted to get that release, right? Their pent up sexual desires, these weird kinky things, um, would turn to the the black population because they could feel like they could um, use them for these things without fear of any information spreading Without fear of, you know, it was kind of like a safe place yeah. for them to, to to use these people for their own weird, twisted sexual fantasies.
0: Does there, that make sense? There wasn't there was an element of that, I think, certainly. But then there were other times um, because in earlier chapters, uh, Malcolm X talked about you know working in in the someone in the prostitution industry he was right uh, called a, he, he was a sti- he did steering steering actually, steering, and I like. Uh, y- Sorry, I don't mean to cut you off. But no, but I mean, it was one of the things that disappointed me in that area of the book was he would talk about like, you know, man, I've seen seen things you wouldn't believe, and then didn't spend much time talking about those things, and I was, <laughs> <laughs> you're like, what were I'm they, i What out were out How they? bad these things were?
1: I mean, he but, if he talked about the the pampering and the the baby powder thing and the man getting whipped, but he wouldn't talk about these other things. Like, what were they?
0: Yeah, well and it's the whipping that I kind of wanted to talk about because you know, he talked about how there were these these white guys that that wanted to be whipped specifically by a black woman and like the the blacker the better. Mm-hmm. And I I do wonder whether there was a racial element to that beyond the whole this is someone who won't reveal my secrets to my peers. It almost feels like there's maybe a hint of white guilt or um, a sexualization of, of the, you know, black race as, you know, this kind of violent savage or um, like there's something deeper to that particular kink. Yeah, it would be, being just.
1: Yeah. Um, yeah, it'd be interesting to know, I mean, I guess we can't at this point, but um, if, like you say, it was more of this, uh, this savagery that they felt that these people possessed, or if it was um, just a physical prowess, you know, maybe they, mm-hmm. they recognized that and that was something that, that turned them on. Um, more than than just the i don't want to say the fact that it
0: would be sort of kept secret right
1: well yeah but i i, I mean i, I just I, I didn't want to use the word savagery again i wanted to go in a different direction but
0: mm-hmm, um mm-hmm.
1: you know because i feel like those are two different things you know like you can be you know physically not endowed but very savage in your approach to the way you do things right but it would be interesting to know which side of that, that these people at that time were more drawn to? The freedom that savagery brings, or, you know, the physical
0: dominance? But knowing that, you know, there couldn't be, you know, like, there's no knowing, obviously. It's just no. interesting to think that with, with that kink in particular, um, there could be kind of multiple reasons behind where that, where that, um, connection to being sexually gratified came from now we eventually at chapter nine get to malcolm finally uh everything catches up to him and he is arrested yes um in kind of a dumb way too really he had brought uh i believe a watch into a a watch that he had stolen right uh, into a jewelry shop to have it repaired and um it was recognized as something that had been stolen.
1: Well, the, the person I owned it priorly or prior
0: prior, I can't even talk. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Well, he had, he had reached out to jewelers and said like, this is piece has been stolen. It requires this. It was, it had this defect it needs to be repaired.
0: Yeah. And so when the, 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 shop got the watch, um, they had known it was stolen. They reached out to the police the police were sort of waiting there uh, when Malcolm came in to pick up the watch. And bing, bang, boom, he was caught. And apparently was maybe on the the verge of getting killed right there. Because as the cop came out to arrest him, um, another guy comes through the door. And the cop turns to sort of guide the person back out again. And I guess in that moment... Um, Malcolm X had considered pulling his gun and shooting the cop and getting away. But instead, uh, took his gun out and sort of put it down on the counter and, and gave up, only to realize that there were, what, one or two more cops in the jewelry store who certainly would have shot him. Right. Had he shot the cop.
1: Yeah, so he thought about killing the cop, and then decided to just gesture to the cop, like "get my gun," because it was in his mm-hmm. in his belt, and uh, realized that there was two other cops in there. So if he would have shot the cop, he wouldn't have got away. He would have been he would have been killed. Um, do you want to? Were you going to touch on uh, Sophia's husband at all?
0: during this oh yeah because that's, I, actually that's a big part of that chapter that i just kind of blew over but, so you can go ahead and talk about that yeah i
1: feel like you know when it when it comes up to him getting caught like he was playing with fire all around you know like yeah, he absolutely. was he was just unhinged you know it, it almost felt like he was he was really acting out in a lot of ways um mm-hmm. you know and maybe maybe dropping that watch off was it was a bit of acting out as well maybe he felt you know fuck him I'm not going to get caught. Whatever. Yeah. You know, I know that this is stolen. I know that, you know, it's dangerous. It's got a, you know, very, it's a very specific piece. It's got a very specific uh, defect on it. Um, you know, maybe he was just like, fuck it, whatever. Um, but one day he walks into one of his favorite pubs and the waiter looks at him and gives him this funny look like, hey man, like something's not right here, Right he walks in and he sees uh, Sophia sitting down with a white man uh, across the table. And it's not Sophia's husband. Um, I'm not sure if he knew that at the time. But uh, he realizes that... Um, well, <laughs> he describes it in this way. And this is kind of information that I don't think he would have had at the time. But he says that a friend of Sophia's husband had been spending time with Sophia because Sophia's husband was, was out doing a salesman thing. Cause he was no longer in the army. Um, mm-hmm. and he really wanted to go to this, uh, you know, I don't know if I can, can I say Negro?
0: Yeah. Negro is fine.
1: Okay. That's how he described it. Like a, a Negro, um, gathering place, a Negro bar. And, Sophia didn't want to go, you know, because she had been there a lot with, with Malcolm and, and
0: with short. Didn't want that to kind of get out.
1: <laughs> well, exactly. Right. And, uh, so he, he wouldn't take no for an answer. They end up going and she's, you know, he describes it as, you know, she wasn't, maybe they talked afterwards. I'm not sure. Um, about how she was hoping that nobody would recognize her and come up and be like, Hey, Sophia, how are you? Right. Cause she was a regular, mm-hmm. everybody knew her. Um, and Malcolm, you know, he he saw this happen. He could have just sat down, had a drink and let it be. But he didn't. You know, he he got up, he walked over to these to Sophia and Sophia's husband's friend and stroke up like struck up a conversation, called her baby and mm-hmm. just made it very very obvious that her and him were a thing and they had been for several years, I think even before she had met her husband.
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: Um, and uh, I think I think when you're talking about when you said that somebody came into the jewelry store wanting to kill Malcolm, I think what you were getting at
0: was... No, no, I, again, I never said the person that came into the jewelry store wanted to kill him. Oh, okay,
1: I'm sorry, my bad.
0: But somebody else did Just want... that someone came in, someone came into the jewelry store, mm-hmm. and it was when the cop was trying to usher that guy back outside... Because they were dealing with the arrest, that's when the cop turned his back.
1: That's when he could have killed him, but he didn't. And if he would have, he would have been dead. Okay, I gotcha. But somebody did want to kill him that day. Because while he was at the police station, Sophia's husband, with a gun, went to his apartment and was ready to kill him. So
0: So getting arrested might have turned out to be a very lucky thing for him.
1: Oh, absolutely. And I think in more ways than, than two. <laughs> you know first first being he didn't shoot the cop and then get killed there in the jewelry yeah. store um for two he wasn't he didn't go home and get shot by Sophia's husband yeah. and for three it gave him the opportunity I'm not saying it was a good thing um but I I think and I haven't read chapter 10 and I apologize but the way that I feel it's going is um his time in prison is where he starts to find himself in the way that really feels good to him.
0: Well, he definitely um, finds the nation of Islam, which I guess we can we can start moving on to chapter 10. Satan. This is um, all you, but Teach me. Which is, uh, it's called Satan because he ends up with that nickname in prison. Um, while he's being sentenced, he kind of gets the sense... That he, Because he ends up getting um kind of maximum sentences for these crimes. And he starts getting the sense that it has less to do with the crimes themselves than it has to do with the fact that he involved these upstanding white women in these crimes. Like, that's the real crime that he committed, was dragging these clean... Yeah. The perfect white women down into these horrible black crimes.
1: Well, and even, and even
0: just being with them. Mm-hmm. I, I didn't repart it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That was one of the things his lawyer said. Like, you didn't have any right being with those white women.
1: And then the one person was asking him, like,
0: did you sleep with her? And he was
1: like, well, mm-hmm. what do you think?
0: <laughs> right? Uh, oh, I made a note of this. Um, I think that's when he was. First brought to prison, or... Yeah, he got 10 years. Uh, This was in February 1946. I wasn't quite 21. I had not even started shaving. So everything we've covered so far just gets us to um, almost the age of 21. Which is crazy. It's crazy. So there he is behind bars. Kind of doing okay. Um, Trading cigarettes hoarding cigarettes for money, figures out how to get high on uh, nutmeg. And then he gets kind of a weird note from his family that tells him to quit smoking and stop eating pork. He thinks this is some kind of um, ploy to get him out of prison. Um, And he thinks, actually, it reminds him of uh, how he got out of the military, which we didn't talk about, but um ever so briefly uh in chapter six i believe uh he gets drafted but when he goes in to sort of follow up um he pulls this kind of crazy act out where he implies that he uh correct me if i'm wrong but he kind of applies that he wants to sort of get his hands on some weaponry and shoot a bunch of white people no
1: that's exactly what he said yeah
0: yeah uh and so they basically you know Stamped him not fit for service, and he never heard from the military again. Um, And so when his family tells him to stop um, smoking cigarettes and to stop eating pork, his first thought is that this is going to be part of that sort of thing, that they're going to create some kind of weird, crazy defense to get him out of prison. But it gradually just becomes, I believe, sort of the first steps towards... Um, joining the religion of the Nation of Islam, which I'm not going to get super into right now, because I imagine there's going to be even more of it in the chapters to come. But it is very much a religion focused on the concept of black superiority. Uh, It was created, I want to say, sort of in the 1930s, but I probably have that date wrong. Um, But it's very much, uh, it, it came out of, Um, Blacks in America. And so, as you know, Oren, I'm not a religious person. I'm an atheist. Um, I believe you are as well. Um, Very much so. So when I look at religion, quite often I see... um, I can see how people are either drawn to religions that already support their beliefs or stick within ones because they were raised within those beliefs. But, you know, I think, you know, for example, someone who already believes that homosexuality is wrong is going to be drawn to that sort of religion, right? Religion sort of helps shape your beliefs or encourage them. And when you look at the Nation of Islam, it's definitely a religion... That evolved out of the persecution of African Americans of of, um, you know, feeling like they were and rightly so, um, absolutely um, taken advantage of by white men for generations. Okay, so here is a, a point I want to make because there there's a difference between Islam and the nation of Islam. The Nation of Islam, as a name, belongs to this religion that came out of um, African Americans in the United States.
1: Okay, and and the religion of Islam is an ancient... Yes. ...from the 7th century.
0: And... Okay, okay. The Nation of Islam does build from some uh, Islamic beliefs, I believe. Okay, so that... I will admit that I I haven't read too much on the Nation of Islam, but... Um it, it does seem to be somewhat connected. But they also believe specifically that um that the, the the black race is the superior race, that white men are devils, that were created to oppress them. Um so it is very much a somewhat racially intolerant religion.
1: Right. Is that tripping happening on your end or mine?
0: Oh that's on my end, sorry. That is my, um, what's it called? My my Garden, my indoor. Oh, okay. That I grow my salad greens in. It's watering time.
1: Todd Sullivan, ladies and gentlemen, not just a very intellectual man, but also a grower of shit. Cool stuff. Yeah, I got my. What you got? What you got got in there? I got my
0: indoor grow up here. What you got in there? Uh, salad greens. Is it? You don't like herbs? Just salad greens? Yeah, well, I had herbs growing at one time, but I, I didn't know what to do with them, and I didn't cook with them often enough, so it didn't seem worthwhile, whereas to be able to just, like, rip out a bunch of handfuls of varying salad greens at dinner time to make a quick salad, I, I dig that quite a lot.
1: Gotcha. So, sorry to get, take you off topic. Um, no, it's okay. Th- this, this um, I, I'm very, and I think maybe a lot of people um, who are listening as well might be very interested No. That Islam and the Nation of Islam are two very different things. Yes, I I did I did not know that.
0: Yeah, um, I'm gonna actually do a very quick Wikipedia check. Yeah, it was started in uh, 1930. Uh, its stated goals are to improve the spiritual, mental, social, and economic condition of African Americans. Critics have described the theology of uh, the organization as promoting anti-Semitism and anti-LGBT rhetoric and of promoting racial separatism, black nationalism, and of having promoted black supremacist beliefs in the past. Okay. The Southern Poverty Law Center tracks the NOI as a hate group, which it claims teaches a theology of innate black superiority over whites, which does appear to be accurate in um, the way that um, the, it's initially talked about in the autobiography of Malcolm X.
1: Okay, well, I feel that is a huge distinction within, mm-hmm. with very few words. Because I, I just, yeah. I, I, honestly, I assumed Malcolm X um, was, was a Muslim. Was a Muslim. Um, I, I didn't realize that, that being a Muslim and, and being a, a member of the Nation of Islam were two different things.
0: Yeah. Um, and I seem to recall, and I can't remember if it was in, I think it was in that chapter, in, in chapter 10, where he talks about um, going to Mecca. Mm-hmm. and and speaking there with, with Muslims who were criticizing the Nation of Islam for kind of bastardizing the Islamic religion and uh, him basically saying that that was their fault for not doing enough to spread that religion to the West. I believe okay. um, that's... Kind of the anecdote that he showed.
1: I, I do have a I do have a cousin who is Muslim.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, actually, a, couple, a, a few. My my cousin, her and her two sons, um, are all Muslim. And uh, yeah, it, definitely the way that they describe it, it's a it's a religion of peace. Um, it's a religion of inclusivity. Um, it's not a you know they don't practice it in any divisive way. Um, so yeah, when I when I when I when you were talking about it I was like, Oh, yeah. I was I was ready to fight you. i was like, ah man, like that's not how it is. You know <laughs> you got it wrong, bro. But uh yeah, um, like I said, to know that it's two completely different things is, is, is mind boggling because it just, just to to my mind, from what I know, which is very limited, um when you think Islam, you think Muslim, I wouldn't mm-hmm. make any distinction between the two. Uh, so it's, it's really, really interesting to know.
0: Thank you for that. Yeah, no worries. I mean, you would have figured that out if you just finished the chapter, but.
1: <laughs> <laughs> oh, damn. Okay. And the, and the, the shadow is cast.
0: <laughs> I believe it was, um, Malcolm's sister, Ella. Mm-hmm and a couple of his brothers who had now joined the nation of Islam and were encouraging him to as well. And that's, you know, they also talk about how all of the other races, the 200-year span was needed to eliminate on the island of Patmos all of the black people until only brown people remained. The next 200 years were needed to create from the brown race the red race, race, with no more browns left on the island. And another 200 years from the red race was created the yellow race. 200 years later, the white race had at last been created. The island of Patmos was nothing but these blonde, pale-skinned, cold-blue-eyed devils. Savages, nude, and shameless. Hairy like animals, they walked on all fours, and they lived in trees. 600 more years passed before this race of people returned to the mainland among the natural black people. Mr. Elijah Muhammad teaches his followers that within six months' time, through telling lies that set the black men fighting among each other, this devil race had turned what had been a peaceful heaven on earth into a hell, torn by quarreling and fighting. But finally, the original black people recognized that their stubborn trouble stemmed from this devil white race that Mr. Yakub had made. They rounded them up, put them in chains with little aprons to cover their nakedness. This devil race was marched off across the Arabian desert to the caves of Europe.
1: Wow. Okay,
0: there's a lot to yeah. unpack there. There is a lot to unpack there. <laughs> oh, here we go. Yeah. Okay. I was uh, I was to learn later that Elijah Muhammad's tales, like this one of Jacob, infuriated the Muslims of the East. While at Mecca, I reminded them that it was their fault since they themselves hadn't done enough to make real Islam known in the West. Their silence left a vacuum into which any religious faker could step and mislead our people. So from that, it seems that um, perhaps later in his life he does become a more traditional muslim but still in that moment says that you know because um islam was not properly spread to you know european countries or the west Mm -hmm. it allowed for this misinformation or this false religion to um kind of fill that void But I imagine this is not the last we will hear of the Nation of Islam, and I'm sure it will make for some interesting reading as we move forward. It's
1: jarring to hear that kind of talk as a white person. It's it's kind of, it's hurtful, right? And Mm -hmm. it's but that's what people of color have lived with for forever. You know, they've been pointed out, they've been segregated they've been you know and to have it happen to you to happen to to the color of your skin it's hard it's hurtful
0: totally yeah something
1: i i I don't think i've really really experienced before there's that white privilege again right yeah um I, i wouldn't blame anybody who's been persecuted Who's been segregated to, you know, latch on something like that? Absolutely. If you've spent your life being told you're less than, but in your mind you've seen that you are equal or better too, and somebody comes along and tells you that, you know, you're you're the true race, right? Mm. You would. would latch on to that absolutely yeah um yeah that's uh like i said hard to hear but absolutely understand how that would be
0: so alluring and it's interesting thing to uh, to think too that that's a a religion that remains active
1: i mean it's not that surprising racism is still active
0: yeah, no, like I was saying, like I can totally get how that, um, you know, having been oppressed for generations, um, that would be an appealing message that um, you know, this is why you were oppressed and you are the chosen people and you need to rise up and defeat the white demons.
1: I'm 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 really curious to see where he goes from here. Mm-hmm. Um, Me too. It's very interesting to to get this kind of insight into a mind like his, you know? A very intellectual person who has been suppressed, has been through the things that he's been through. I'm actually really, really, really glad that you picked this book.
0: You picked this book, dude. I did? Yeah, I gave you a couple of choices and you picked this one.
1: Oh, well, that was one of your choices, so you picked it as a choice, so...
0: I'm giving you credit. Okay. You deserve <laughs> right there, so. Um, So I think that brings us to a close. Um, looking ahead to next episode, this one is coming out late. Um, my my, my hope is that we'll be able to record next week and, and get back on track and have this one out on the, I guess that'd be the first uh, Sunday of August. Um, fingers crossed. Uh, we will be covering... Mm-hmm. Chapters 11 through 16, uh, which is about 150 pages. Uh, so, only about, I think, 10 pages more than we covered. No, I'm lying. Chapters 11 through 15 is about 150 pages. Okay. And that's what we'll be covering next time. Um, until then, thanks for listening. I'm Todd Sullivan. And I'm Orin Barger. Orrin oh, <laughs> That's uh, okay. until then. I'm Todd Sullivan.
1: And I'm Orin Barger.
0: Uh, this has been when bad things happen to good people. Thanks for listening. Now go read a fucking book.